I'd like to begin with a question. Think about this. Would you rather be loved because someone sees how beautiful you are, how smart you are, how clever you are, how helpful and kind you are, how thoughtful you are, how generous you are? Or would you rather be loved simply because the person who loves you is so kind-hearted and loving? Which would you rather choose? Which, which love, in fact, would be more dependable in the course of life? Which love would uphold you and strengthen you and be a source of assurance in the crises of life? The key to facing the challenges of life, I think you'll see this in your own life and the lives of friends, the key is being loved. When we're loved with a steady, unwavering love, When we know that there's someone somewhere who just loves us, we can bear up with anything. Of course, when we talk about an unassailable, constant kind of love that nothing can overcome, we are immediately pointed to the love of God. But the question then is why? Why would God love you? What reason does he have? So I'd like to look at our text, Deuteronomy, and look at Three things. First of all, the wrong reason to expect God to love you. And then the only right reason to expect God to love you. And then why the love of God is so crucial to us now in the crises we're facing in our nation and in the nations of the world now, but really through every small and big crisis. Why do I love you? God answers this question in a strange way in our text. So Deuteronomy chapter 7, here's how he answers it in verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. If someone asks you, why do you love me? I don't think you'd give this kind of an answer. I mean, husbands, try that with your wife. Well, let me begin by telling you all the reasons why I don't love you. My dearest, I have to tell you, you're really not that great. You're not that important. You're not the most beautiful of women. You're not that smart. Your personality doesn't exactly sparkle. You wouldn't exactly begin that way, would you? You wouldn't begin with the negatives. It's like that old song. It's kind of funny. Every verse is funny, but one verse says this. Now you don't live in a beautiful place and you don't dress in the best of taste. And nature didn't give you such a beautiful face, but, and then the chorus says, but I love you. But I love you, he says. Why? Why do you love me, Lord? And the answer the Lord gives is, well, here's the knots, not because of this, this, and this, but I love you because I love you. That's that strange sentence here. Verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you because of X, Y, Z, but because the Lord loved you, verse 8, but because the Lord loved you. He loved you because he loved you. And it's a very tender love that he has. In fact, as you read this story of the exodus of God's people, we've been looking at it for the past few weeks, haven't we? From Egypt to Israel, you see how he displays that love in very kind ways. If you have your Bibles, look, for example, at Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 30. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness 
where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as a man carries his son. It's a very tender, sweet love. In chapter 4, if you again just go back a couple chapters, verse 7, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? It's God promising that in love I'm going to be close to you and my ears are going to be tuned to you so that when you call on me, I will hear you. So why did he love them? Well, not because they were so wonderful. The Lord knows them just as he knows us. In fact, in chapter 9, I'm just jumping around a little just to give you a flavor. Chapter 9, verse 6. Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you're a stubborn people. Stubborn, or as the old translations put it, stiff-necked people. No, it's not because you were great. It's not because you're wonderful. It's because he loved you. I love you because I love you. In fact, he says they're prone to forget God. They have a tendency, once things are right, to go their own way. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. He warns them. Why does he have to warn them? Because he knows their heart. Chapter 6, verse 10. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he gave to your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the land which he promised to give to you, great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt and from the house of slavery. They're prone to forget about God at the drop of a hat as soon as things turn good. Yet God says, I love you. Why? Why? Well, here's the wrong reason to think that God loves us. Clearly, it's not because of who they are. It's not because of their nature. It's not because of their accomplishments. It's not because they are more in any respect than any other nation. It's not because of their righteousness. So those are the wrong reasons to think that God loves us because of who we are. So what's the right reason? Well, he says, I love you, verse 8, because I love you. In other words, it's all from God. It's not who they are, it's not who we are, but it's who he is. He is a God of love. God is love, First John tells us. So that brings me to the question I started with. Which kind of love would you feel safer in? You know, by nature, I think we feel safer being loved because of who we are. I think we feel like we're a little bit in control. I want to be so attractive that he can't stay away from me. I want to be so admired that she just feels safe only when she's with me. We feel like when it's up to us, things are safer. Which kind of love would you prefer? I put things in that way. Would you rather be loved because you're beautiful or because the one who loves you has put his love on you because he's so loving? I put it that way because it reminded me of a movie I saw as a boy. It's called Cinderella. Some of you have seen some version of this. My sisters loved it. I have to tell you that just as much as they loved it, the boys hated it. And there's a song sung by the prince to Cinderella 
while they're dancing. They're all wearing these gaudy clothes. The prince has this shiny stuff on and glittery crowns on both of them. And the prince turns to her and he starts to sing. Of course, their eyes are locked in each other. He says, do I love you because you're beautiful? Or are you beautiful because I love you? Good question, I suppose, but oh, it was just too much for us to bear as boys. Now you have to imagine little boys listening to this and just going out of their minds. And so we, to tease our sisters, made up some alternative lyrics. Okay, they're silly. So you have to imagine little boys singing this. So we changed it to, do I smell you because you stink so much? Or do you stink so much just so I can smell you? Irritating and silly, I know. I'm ashamed of it. And of course, it bothered the sisters endlessly, which is why we kept singing it. I'm ashamed of it for what I did then, but even more now, because in the passage of time, I found that that lyric really makes sense. There's really something to it. It raises a question that we have to answer. Do I love you because you're beautiful, or are you beautiful because I love you? In other words, do I cherish you? Do I value you? because I've already set my love on you? Is it my love that gives you worth and value and makes you precious in my eyes? So that's why I ask, which would you prefer? If you had to choose, in other words, I know we'd like to say both, but if you had to choose, if your sanity in life depended on it, if your confidence in marching through life, if your assurance depended on it, which would you choose? I think in romantic relationships, we tend to prefer the first. You know, it's flattering. It makes us feel precious. It makes us feel valued. It gives us the assurance of being in control. I've captivated him with my beauty. He can't leave me. Or he says, I'm such a prize that he'll never abandon me. It's who we are. It makes us feel confident, in control of things. But that kind of assurance can turn to very dark uncertainty Why? Because things change and we change. We don't remain the same. Very often, the very things that we think are attractive about us diminish and degrade. What if sickness comes? What if weakness and ill health strikes us? What if beauty fades? I read about many women, this surprised me, whose husbands have never seen them without their makeup. Night or day, ever. They've never seen them. One said, he fell in love with the made-up me, and I don't know what he'd think if he saw me without the makeup. I don't want to pick on anybody, but that's an instability, isn't there? There's stress in that. There's no kind of comfort in that love that no matter what happens to me, that love is still there. It's the opposite of that. And what if the very cause of the stress is the relationship itself? What then do you do? What would give you comfort? What if the friendship is fracturing? The love that you depended upon. What if the marriage is coming apart? The love that you depended on. What love will uphold you then? Sometimes I think we ask of human love, but only God's love can give. We look to marriage partners or we look to friends to be like lifesavers when we feel like we're drowning in the difficulties of our lives. And so we hold on to them and we grasp them and we put all our weight on them and they feel like we're dragging them down with ourselves, with us. And what do they do? Well, they stay away from us. They have to save themselves. They're not strong enough. Their love and their lives are not strong enough 
to hold us. Strength only comes, assurance only comes when we are loved just because we're loved by one whose love is unassailable, only from the love of God. He loves us not because of who we are. We don't have to fear future changes. He loves us because of who he is. And he never changes. He never changes. But there's a little bit of wrinkle in this. So, so far, so good. Verse 7 and the beginning of 8. There's a little wrinkle in this. If you have your Bibles and you look at the text again in Deuteronomy 7, it says this in verse, let me read 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness, so far so good, to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 10. But repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with them who hate him. He will repay him to his face. So what's with these verses? I mean, does God love us just because he loves us? Or does he love us because we earn his love by keeping his commandments? You might think that at a cursory reading of this verse. In other words, does he love us because of who we are? That is obedient. We're a people who keep his commandments and therefore he loves us. That's the opposite of what I've been saying up till now. Does keeping his commandments make us attractive to God? Should we be trying to be as obedient as we possibly can so that we can in some way earn God's love? And yet, when you look at the Old Testament and you look at the New Testament, you find something very simple. This fact that there's no one, no one who has ever earned the love of God by keeping his commandments. No one. Not the Israelites. In fact, if you take a walk through their Exodus journey, you'll see that that's true over and over again. If you read, for example, Exodus 20 through 23, those four chapters, you read those chapters, you find that they receive the commands of God in that passage, the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, and then ordinances essentially for temple worship. And it says that these were for their good. Deuteronomy 10 verse 13. God says, I gave you these commandments for your good. So far, so good. Exodus 24, verse 3, they say something wonderful. They say, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. Isn't that wonderful? All that the Lord has commanded, we will do. So far, so good. Well, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai for 40 days. A lot less time than the lockdown that we've been in during this pandemic crisis. He goes up for 40 days, and you know what they begin to do immediately? They make a golden calf and begin to worship it. All that the Lord has commanded, we will do. Ah, let's make a golden calf and worship. In fact, God says something interesting. In Exodus 32, verse 8, he says, They have quickly turned aside from the way I commanded them. Notice that word, quickly. They've quickly turned aside from the way I commanded them. No kidding, it was right away. The failure was not just that they broke rules, but you notice that there's something, another word here at the end of verse 9, with those who love him and keep his commandments. God didn't just want rules keepers, you know, flipping through their books, looking at chapter 3, section 5, subsection A and obeying it. No, he wanted those who loved him. The real failure was that they failed to love God and therefore to trust his goodness to delight to please him. It was a heart problem. In fact, 
this troubling word in our culture, this word hate in verse 10 might be bothering you, but we have to see hate in the context of that kind of love. It's a contrast to love. So in verse 10, when God talks about those who hate him, he's not really talking about an emotion, some kind of a passion to destroy God, a kind of a simmering anger against God, going around trying to undo God anywhere they can. I'm not saying there aren't people like that, but that's not generally what this refers to. But it's really in contrast to loving God. It's the opposite of being, what does love mean? To be loyal to him. It means to choose him above all others. It means to turn to him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so to hate him is the opposite of that. It means to turn away from God. It means, well, to be indifferent to him. I don't really care what God thinks or whether there even is a God. It means to go our own way. So what God wanted was for us to love him. We read in 1 John in the beginning of this service that we love him because he first loved us. He loved us. And so he loves us just as we are because he's love. And then that excites in us a love and a passion for him. So our lives are not beautiful, and yet God loves his children. Why? Because he is love. And in love, he reached down to a disobedient children in Jesus, our Messiah. And he loved them, and he, well, he picked them up, and he held them in his arms, and he hugged them. And he says, I love you. Why? Because I love you. How about the commandments, the law? Well, the law, really, when you look at it in the Old and the New Testament, is This is the way I like to think of it. This image works for me. Maybe it'll work for you. It's like a a child going to one of those amusement parks and you come to a ride, a roller coaster, let's say, and there's this cutout of a clown standing there with his arm like that and says, you must be this high to be on this roller coaster and the clown has a big smile on it. And the children go up to that and it's way up there. It's like unimaginably high for them. They can't even see the arm. They jump up. They can't even touch the arm when they jump up. And they say, how useless is this? Because all the children are like that. Everyone's way too low. Everyone fails to meet the standard. And they say, what's the point? They're discouraged. What's the point of even having this promise of entertainment there? And then the Heavenly Father comes and he lifts up his children in his arms and now his children are as tall as their father and they sit in his lap and they enjoy the ride. That's the grace of God. That's the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. No one earns love by keeping commands. That's clear in the Old and the New Testament. But in Christ, what happens is we experience the love of God. And when we experience the love of God, what happens? We see how good he is. We see how trustworthy he is. see how wise he is. And we want to please him. We see that there's nothing better for us than to please him. So we want to keep his commands. And here's the key. Not to earn his love, but we want to keep his commands because we've been loved. So God loves us. Wrong reason. Wrong reason to expect his love. Not because we're good. Not because we're better than other people, a little bit more moral, more generous, more kind. Not because we're righteous. Because the truth is, just like the Israelites, we're stubborn, we're stiff-necked. But God loves us, well, because in Christ, he loves us. He loved you because he loved you.
And friends, this is the love we need, which is strong enough to bear us through life. That's the last point I want to make. We need this kind of love. I think there's many people listening who feel very isolated, alone right now. Maybe because the kind of love you expect from people is not there, but the kind of love we really need as a foundation for our lives is this love of God. Life becomes unbearable when we're not loved at all. I think we know that. But when we are loved, we can bear any crisis. When we know that there's someone who loves us, when we know that somewhere there's someone in whose heart we are precious and valued, we can bear any crisis. Viktor Frankl was, as a young man, a prisoner in Auschwitz, those awful, horrible, unbelievably cruel concentration camps during World War II. He was there for three years. And he writes in his memoir that one day, he, along with a friend who was a prisoner, were being marched through the ice and the snow to their place of work early in the morning. Let me quote what he says. And as we stumbled on for miles, slipping on icy spots, supporting each other time and again, nothing was said. But we both knew. Each of us was thinking of his wife. Occasionally I looked at the sky where the stars were fading and the pink light of the morning was beginning to spread behind a dark bank of clouds. But my mind clung to my wife's image. I heard her answering me, saw her smile, her frank and encouraging look. And then this, I understood how a man who has nothing left in this world still may know bliss, if only for a brief moment, in the contemplation of his beloved. Let me read that again. I understood how a man who has nothing left in this world still may know bliss, if only for a brief moment, in the contemplation of his beloved. Now, I, I want to say that nothing we are experiencing in our current crisis nationally is like this. I don't know if any of us will ever experience the kinds of horrors that Frankel and others experienced, but what I quoted is a true lesson about life, about our need for love when we walk through crises. In every crisis, even if it's the small crises we feel of being forgotten, overlooked, abandoned, hurt, by the way, these never seem small because they're close to us. You know, they cover our vision. They seem to be as big as the world to us. There's nothing else because they're so close to us. Whatever crisis we feel, whatever crisis we're going through, we need love. We won't survive without love. When hope fades, when hope is replaced by fear and grief and loss, we need to know that there's a solid love still holding us. We aren't abandoned. And there's only one love strong enough. There's only one love that is unassailable, and that's the love of God in Christ Jesus for you and me. That's why that's the hope of sinners. That's what I've been talking about. It's the hope of sinners. The God who loves us not because of who we are, but because of who he is. By the way, I think that's why the gospel is unattractive to those who don't yet see their own weakness. It's unattractive to those who don't see the fractures in their own character, who say, you know what, I'm pretty good. I'm better than a lot of people. I know God must love me. The gospel is unattractive to them because they still rely on who they are. But Christians are those who know they're loved just because they are loved. They're loved because God is love. 
The well-known story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 talks about a young man who ventured out with great confidence. He was strong, he thought, wise, confident in his dreams of a prosperous and exciting future. He says, just give me what is justly mine and I'm out of here. So he takes his inheritance and he heads out and he's doing well. He's happy, he's celebrating. All his friends surround him. And then crisis comes. Crisis comes into his life. He lost all that he had. He spent it. It was all gone. And he realized at that time how fickle the love of friends was. Slowly, one by one, as he is not able to give them anything, as he doesn't have what they need, slowly, one by one, they abandon him. And he's left alone. He's left with hunger gnawing at his stomach, rather. And then, even more importantly, he feels the ache in his heart, longing for the warm love of his home. He realized that he wasn't what he thought he was. He realized that he needed true love, and so he stumbled home and he said, Father, I failed. He says, Father, I failed. I'm not as strong as I thought I was, not as wise as I thought I was. And before, as you know, he could finish his speech, his father hugged him, embraced him, and welcomed him back, but not because the son had become successful, not because he had started a company and made a billion dollars, not because he had proven himself to be wise and strong and good. No, but because the father recognized here was someone who was in need of a gracious love, who needed to hear, I love you, my son, because I love you. Not because of who you are, because of who I am. C.S. Lewis, who many of us love to read, I certainly do, talks about his coming to faith in God. And I've quoted this many times because there's a phrase in here that just strikes me, in some ways just draws me up to worship. He compares himself to the prodigal son and in a beautiful way also contrasts himself. Let me read what he says. I want to preface this by saying, that he struggled against God all his life. You know, he didn't want to become a Christian. He didn't want to believe in God. He says, you must picture me alone in that room night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not then see, I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing. The divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? I love that phrase. Who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is looking for every way to escape the grasp of that perfect love? Do you see, Christian, do you see, Christian, then, whatever you're experiencing, whatever struggle, whatever crisis you're experiencing, do you see how firm a grip God's love has on you?
His love, His love is our confidence, our foundation in every crisis of life. Romans 5, verse 10. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Can you see that? When we were far from Him, He came to us in love. Much more now that we've responded with love and faith in Him, much more now He'll save us from every crisis in life. The love that embraced us at our worst still holds us in its grip when everything else gives way. Praise God for his love. Let's pray. Dear Lord our God, what can we do but praise you and adore you for this love with which you've loved us in Christ Jesus? It really, Lord, silences all our boasts. Oh, but at the same time, it gives us tremendous confidence and peace because we don't have to present a resume to you. We don't have to dance before you to seem attractive. We just come to you just as we are, knowing that your specialty is in loving people like us. I pray, Lord, I pray for all those who are watching. If there's any, Lord, who have not experienced this love in Christ Jesus, the love that was willing to go to the cross to win us back and make a way for us to be home with God our Father. I pray, Lord, that they would, even today, experience this love through the pouring out of this love in their hearts in your Holy Spirit. Welcome us home, Lord, we pray in your precious name. Amen. I know that there's many people who these days are feeling unloved. They're feeling abandoned, forgotten. I know there's people who feel great stress because of that. And it's understandable because Scripture tells us God made us for companionship. God made us for human companionship. But I want to tell you there's a love that's even more foundational, stronger, more necessary for our daily existence. And that's the love of God for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Psalm 27, the psalmist says, Even when my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will take me up. So that's my benediction for you. May the love of God for you in Christ Jesus fill you with peace and confidence whatever you face during these days and in all the days to come. Amen.